This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. It's good to have you with us today. British poet Ruth Padel's life is entwined with the music of Beethoven. Her great-grandfather was a concert pianist who studied with a friend of Beethoven's. Her parents met through music, and Padel grew up playing Beethoven's chamber music on the viola, which Beethoven also played as a child. Now Ruth Padel has woven all of that personal history, with details of the composer's own life, into a book of poetry called Beethoven Variations. And Ruth Padel is with me now. Welcome. Thanks for taking time today. Thanks for asking me, Julie. It's lovely to be here. We are hearing here Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, performed by Vladimir Ashkenazi. And I'd like to have you actually read the poem that you have given that same title to in the book. You, in this poem, are using this song, this music, to reflect on the terrible fate that awaits Beethoven. He, he will go deaf. And this music evokes some of that for you. Would you read that for us? Sure. Thank you. Moonlight Sonata. We make the life we need. The city's bells are muffled. The sky is frozen copper. You still can hear sometimes, still win the improvising contests. A sonata in C-sharp minor, quasi-fantasia. Like a blind girl lit by moonlight, she cannot see. New melodies unfold from tiny seeds. Euphoria, then presto agitato, manic rage. The music of loss, of losing. Bass clef, high treble only once and in despair. Then the new shocked calm of, is it true? Is this what it sounds like going deaf. Ruth Padel, what is it about this song, The Moonlight Sonata, that evoked for you the experience of going deaf or made you think about what might have been happening in the first days in which Beethoven, as a young man, realized this could be his fate. It's such a calm piece to start with. That's why it's called the Moonlight Sonata. A, a German poet, two generations later, said it made him think of the moonlight on Lake, Lake Lucerne. But Beethoven never called it that. And he wrote this at a time when he was really trying to deny that he was going deaf. He had about two or three years when he, he must have had tinnitus, when he, he felt this buzzing, he couldn't distinguish high or low notes, but he didn't want anybody to know because Vienna was a very competitive society. He didn't want his rivals to know that he was losing the faculty that's most important for a musician. So he was nearing despair and trying to keep it at bay. And although this, this huge, beautiful piece is full of calm and beauty and rippling,ness It's also got this manic rage in it. And, and I, for me, it evokes this sense of, you want to see the beauty in life. You want to enjoy what's around you, nature, life, light. But at the same time, this darkness is breaking through this terrible wound inside you that's going to get worse and you don't know what's coming. It's a wonderful example of how you can creatively express something which is celebrates life 
but also expresses your absolutely sharpest and darkest fears. There is a lot of tragedy in in these poems and melancholy. What was Beethoven's childhood like? He had a, a textbook awful childhood, Julie. Um, he was, um, they, they weren't well off. Um, his father was a musician, but not a brilliant musician. His grandfather had been much better. And there was a lot of tension between the grandfather and the father. Beethoven adored his grandfather, but grandfather died when he was three. Um, and the father got drunk. Um, I think he he had a pretty rough right life himself, and he beat the little boy. But very soon he realised that he had a, a kind of genius on his hands. So from a age of about four, he was standing Beethoven up to play at the keyboard, beating him if he made a mistake. He would come home drunk, drag him out of bed in the middle of the night, and stand him up. And um, he would you know people remembered seeing the little boy in tears, standing at the clavichord because he couldn't reach reach the, the notes and crying when his father beat him if he made a mistake. So there's a whole kind of tragedy in that, that his father did have enough musicianship to know that here was something very special. And he beat the notes into him um, and he taught him piano. He taught him violin and viola. But at the same time, there was a really awful relationship there and it got worse as he got drunker. His mother died when he was 16. And then he had to keep the family because his father was too incompetent. And he sometimes had to sort of drag him out of police stations drunk in the middle of the night, sort of inversion of what was happening when he was four. So he he couldn't really wait to get away from his father. It, the one sort of saving thing for him is about the age of 11 or 12, he met a cultured family who sort of took him under their wing. The mother introduced him to um, cultured people who could help help his career, paid him to to give the kids piano lessons. So that was his saving moment, really, that he even had sleepovers there. And um, he met a lot of important people there. He also learned manners, which he didn't really have. <laughs> it was a very. He seemed to like he was a very passionate man, um, just you know, brimming with emotions, <laughs> good, bad, That's and right. ugly. Absolutely. And uh, and and he also um, was prone to falling madly for uh, in love with with various women who almost universally seemed to have dismissed him as ugly, both physically and and just sort of in terms of manners and personality as soon as he got to vienna he he was born in germany right he was he was born in bonn um which was a sort of outpost of the viennese habsburg empire when he got to vienna the viennese thought he was uncouth he was a, a little guy he had a pockmarked face he wore his clothes badly he spoke with a funny accent and um he was he had funny manners too <laughs> um but yet he was amazing at the piano. That's how he first got got introduced to sort of high Viennese society as a pianist. And so they had these big improvising contests and he won them all. He sort of, he was just amazing as an improviser. And then gradually he got known as a composer too. And so all the rich aristocratic women wanted him to teach, guess what? their beautiful daughters. So these were the people he fell in love with. The song that every beginning piano uh, student learns for Elise. (laughs) Here it is performed by (laughs) Lang Lang. So the funny story about this is that one of these beautiful young girls, right, that uh, the daughter of one of these aristocratic families, um, he... We think he wrote this for her. Is that right? But he, but her name yeah. was not Elise. <laughs> it's, it's, she, she was actually the first of them who was not aristocratic. She was the daughter of a very rich merchant. Mm. So he'd been through the mill with aristocratic countesses and the rest. Um, and so, um, you, you know, they'd all they'd all been been escaped from him in some way or other, or just turned him down. Um, but. Therese, she, her name was Therese Malfatti, and she was the daughter, she was the 18-year-old daughter of a rich merchant. He was by now 41. You know, he, he kept falling in love with 18-year-olds, which is not a good look as you get older, basically. Um, but um, here she was, beautiful and 18 and very rich. And he really, really believed that, you know, she returned his feelings. 
Um, and he decided to, he got very excited. He sent for his birth certificate to Bonn. He was going to propose. He, he tried to smarten himself up. He bought some new cravats. Um, and he went off to their salons where they, where they had a little sort of musical party with this piece tucked under his arm. And he was planning to play it for her and then propose and give it to her, dedicate it to her. Mm. But unfortunately, her father was a very sort of good host and he, was, he, he had a lot of punch. He served a lot of punch. So <laughs> by the time Beethoven actually got round to this, he drank too much punch really to do either, to play the music or to propose. So he just dedicated it to her, gave it to her and he scribbled something on it. Um, but it was sort of, you know, it was just left left mm. her. she just kept it mm. and um he didn't even get her name right really though because it's not for therese it's for elise yes that, that's right well um after she died it the manuscript was found among her things so this is way after De- beethoven died mm. and um you know the, the her heirs showed it to a music uh, somebody musical who recognized beethoven's handwriting but what he'd scribbled on it looks like for elise and why on earth he did that, we never know. And some people said it wasn't for, for Therese at all. It's still sort of contested. Mm. But, um, I mean, such a muddle and so sort of typical of poor Beethoven that passion, as you say, passion was everything. He wrote, one of the things he wrote, his Mrs. Solemnis, he wrote on the top of it for his one of his great patrons and friends, from the heart, may it go to the heart. Mm. And that's what he was all about. From the heart, may it go to the heart. But unfortunately, it missed its mark with Therese, I'm afraid. And most of the other women as well that he um, pined for. I'm speaking with Ruth Padell, who's an award-winning British poet. We're talking about her latest book. It's a collection of poems called Beethoven Variations. It's a really beautiful uh, biography in poem form. And there's some memoir folded into the story as well. Uh, I'd love to talk about the poem where you actually describe being a child and with your parent well well with your with your brother and your sister you form a trio and you're actually in in this um in this poem you're playing the the viola and you reference the string trio g major opus nine by beethoven here's what that sounds like played by the zurich string trio So Ruth Padel, set the scene for us here. This poem is called Growing Up with Beethoven. Um, in what way did you grow up with Beethoven? Well, we grew up playing chamber music. My father was a cellist and he got us all playing instruments. So there were five of us. I was the eldest. I played viola. And then my brother played the cello. My sister and my two younger brothers played violin and some of them viola as well. Um, and it was a tradition in my father's family that um, his father had played the violin and he made his wife learn the viola in fact the viola that I still have mm. so when we were young we were sat down every Sunday morning and learned things under my father's eye sometimes we would play quartets but sometimes it was a trio and early on it was this trio mm. would you pick up for us actually I'd love to have you read the the um the last half of this poem growing up with Beethoven starting with where you reference the song the string trio G major opus nine string trio G major, opus nine. First time I hear my viola's true, clear voice. More awkward for my stiff hands and the free birds singing in my throat. As if I were two beings, the soprano soaring upward unafraid and the shy voice of blending in. But I can see Beethoven has given each of us something different to say, mischief and hope. I like that. When we've stumbled through, our dad says, this melody reminded grandfather of sunlight on green mountains. Today, when I listen, I see my dad ahead on a mountain slope, stopping to look at a map or check out other mountains through his telescope. Now so many people I love have died, others lost in the wisps and fogs of Alzheimer's. 
I'd like to hold on to that. Looking back to us three struggling with the notes and the other two listening, waiting their turn. Here we are still, the five of us, trying to get the counting right. So for all of Beethoven's um, sadness and rage and uh, unrequited passion, he um, these are happy memories for you of of playing Beethoven, of listening to Beethoven, and, and even of researching his life? Oh, very, very much. And I was researching his life. I, I, um, I wrote a lot of this book in America, actually. I was, first of all, at Yaddo and then in New York for a while. Um, but I did the research in Europe. And so I was going, I went to Bonn, where I'd never been, and Vienna, where I had been, but not for so long. Um, and this was just at a time before Britain left the European Union. And I was thinking so much about this split and Brexit coming and what that meant because, and identifying really with, with the changes in Europe that Beethoven saw himself. I mean, when he was living in Vienna twice, Napoleon um, occupied and, and once besieged Vienna. So, so the city was full of French troops. Um, and so I was, I was thinking about splits and political changes in my own life and, and the life I saw around me. I, was, I grew up thinking of myself as European um, and I still think of myself as European. Um, but, you know, there are political rifts in Britain now that didn't exist 10 years ago. And um, Beethoven saw a lot of that and he wrote through it all and he wrote to the humanity that's what he cared about was the humanity in people and a melody somehow expressing the sweetness and the connectedness of of human society that's what he he really deeply cared about um and he, so so yes very important for me um and some of the music particularly the chamber music for instance the opera 69 cello sonata um, when you hear that, you hear it's always on the edge of tragedy. He accepts the darkness in us all, but yet there's a there's a resolution. There's a there's a. It doesn't end in sorrow. It ends in joy. His life was a life of a lot of suffering, but also a lot of joy. And so this is the very last moment of his life. And this is the last few lines of, of the last poem in the book. How he died, lifting his fist, as if it held a bird he would release into the storm, pelting Vienna with snow, like the reckless feathers driving all our lives to seek the fullest experience of the air. And I listen to Cello Sonata, Opus 69, and hear the unquenchable spirit that powers every note he writes and lives on, dancing, dancing in you, me, everyone. Adele is an award-winning British poet. She's a professor of poetry at King's College London, and her latest collection of poems is called Beethoven Variations. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Julie. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. More great conversations from the Top of Mind archive are coming up. You're listening to Top of Mind. I'm Ciara Hewlett. MRI machines are massive and expensive, making them limited in their capabilities. You can't take them on an ambulance to make a life-saving determination in a medical emergency. But a company called Hyperfine Research and Yale scientists have just created and deployed the first MRI machine that's portable. 
Kevin Sheth was on the team. He's a professor of neurology and neurosurgery at the Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Sheth, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Describe a situation where this portable MRI machine could save someone's life. So if you think about MRI technology, it's one of the most safe and helpful technologies from the 20th century. But for reasons that you mentioned, it's not necessarily widely available. We use MRI in a lot of settings, especially when it comes to the brain. When people have brain hemorrhages or strokes or head trauma, a brain MRI can be really useful. And so you can imagine that at hospitals where you otherwise might not have an MRI, uh, here in the US at smaller hospitals or in rural settings or in underdeveloped countries, in any of these areas, the technology limitations and cost limitations are just too high. So you go with what you got. But if you have an MRI that you can bring to the bedside in a very easy way and cost-effective way, now you can make these kinds of diagnoses in any setting. That's hugely valuable. And give us a specific example. When do you need absolutely need an MRI machine and, and some, some of these places that you mentioned just don't have one? Well, first of all, what I would say is that uh, it's not necessarily just an MRI machine per se. It's an ability to be able to take a look inside the skull, to take a look inside the brain using any technology. And in these settings, there's really not much available. You know, CAT scanners exist, but they actually have some complexity and some cost and they have limited resolution. So you can see some things, but you can't see others. If you really wanna know the details of what a brain hemorrhage looks like, or if you wanna know if there's a brain infection that's, uh, that's in there uh, inside your skull when it shouldn't be, that's where a portable device like an MRI can be hugely helpful. And that could actually make a life or death determination in some cases, like um, if someone has a, a clot in their brain, you know, do you need blood thinners or is it bleeding in the brain, which would require surgery? Well, let me give you another concrete example. One of the things that happens, let's say you're at a hospital in the middle of pick your favorite state and it's 11 p.m., and emergency personnel find a patient who's simply not waking up. They appear to be in a coma. They come to the emergency department, they get evaluated. There are a lot of different things that can cause someone to be in a coma. Intoxication, um, abnormalities that are metabolic, all kinds of things. One of the things could be that you have a problem in your brain. And you can imagine if you don't have a way to get that picture, you don't have a way to make that diagnosis. Mm. So being in a coma is by definition a life or death situation. Mm. So could this then, this portable MRI machine, could it go on an ambulance even and, and so that you could take it anywhere? One of the really exciting things about this technology is being able to use it in all kinds of settings where we otherwise have not historically had uh, the ability to take pictures of the brain. I'll, I'll give you an, an example and come back to the ambulance. During COVID, the COVID pandemic, we had patients at uh, fancy tertiary care centers throughout the country. And in those intensive care units in a modern setting, actually we couldn't all of a sudden get CAT scans and MRIs. We couldn't do it because we didn't want to always move patients to those scanners because we were worried about COVID transmission. Oh. And in some cases, the patients were too sick to move at all. So what we did there is we brought this portable MRI device to the bedside. Instead of the patient moving to the imaging suite, we brought the device to the bedside. So that was a setting at which we never imaged patients before, but now we could. So can you use it in an ambulance? Well, you can imagine there's a lot of testing and development that has to be done, uh, stability of the device, ability to acquire images, lots of things. But those are all engineering and clinical workflow problems that can be solved. Absolutely, it could be used in the ambulance. 
Maybe it could be used at your local Costco. Maybe it could be used at major uh, sporting events. I think where it can be used is actually limited by our creativity and by our ability to show value. And I think that's going to be one of the really exciting things we see in the years to come. Yeah, that would really make a huge difference if you could take it to all of those different places. Uh, describe what it looks like for us. How big is it? Well, it's quite small, actually. You know, it's maybe just about, uh, you know, four to five feet wa- uh, tall and just a couple feet wide. So, you know, p- pretty small. It can fit into a hospital storage supply room pretty easily. And then does it and does it go around on wheels? Goes around on wheels. And uh, so it can go literally anywhere. We take it in elevators. We've moved it to the bedside on multiple floors. I mean, conceptually, there's no reason you couldn't have one in your garage. But MRI machines, they use magnets and emit this powerful magnetic force and and normally they're in a special room to make sure that you know that's all contained and doesn't you know hurt people but they normally have to be in a special room right so so how can how can you make a portable version oh i I think you hit the nail on the head um most mri rooms are in the bunker of a hospital or in a shielded room for safety concerns it's a special access suite because there have occasionally been these horrible accidents where you take a patient into a room and an oxygen tank flies across the room because of this very powerful magnet. Or, you know, you might have your eyeglasses or a piece of jewelry that someone forgot to take off and, you know, now it's flying across the room. So it's, it's, a, it's a serious deal, these powerful magnets. The fundamental innovation here is that you're working with an incredibly weak magnet. I mean, this is so weak that you can imagine taking a pair of scissors or a set of keys, and until you get within a couple of inches of the magnet, you won't even feel that magnetic tug like you white, like a magnet on the fridge. So it's a very weak magnet, which means that you can actually take it in all kinds of settings in close proximity to things that have uh, metal in them, and you don't have to worry about those safety concerns. That's huge. How does it still work, though? Because a, a normal MRI has a, has that extremely strong magnetic field that excites the protons in the body, and then that and long, complicated science, and that they're able to get images from that. And it seems like you would need a really strong magnet to make protons in our bodies move differently and align with a magnetic field. So how does it still work if it's such a weak magnetic field with this portable version? This is one of the uh, really fascinating and wonderful things about the U.S. investment in science. Over the course of the last decades, coming from a number of different places, commercial development, investments by the NIH, uh, the Department of Defense, uh, and other agencies, There's been a ton of work that goes into uh, improvements on the hardware. If you think about the magnet as a computer and and, and in terms of the actual device, the hardware, on the software and on the interpretation of images, all of these things in sequence actually improve uh, the images, the ability to get images uh, that are useful. This is not a completely fair analogy. But think about these old school cameras that we used to have. And now the um, mobile phones that we all use to take really amazing pictures. Well, what happened in those as well is there were improvements on the actual camera, on the actual devices that we're using. Um, But there were also improvements, as we've seen, in um, what you can do before the images are processed and all the filters that we apply to those pictures. So similarly, We're able to take that very low magnetic field. You do need a magnetic field to do exactly what you said with the protons. So there have been significant improvements there. Some really incredible engineers working on this at Hyperfine and elsewhere. But then you can imagine taking the raw data that you get, the pictures, and actually making improvements on the pictures themselves before they come out. And ultimately, even after they come out, you can make further improvements on the pictures. So I would say yes. 
the pictures that you get today, uh, you know, are, are they as good as what you might get on an old school MRI? No, maybe not. But they're getting better and better with every passing week, as they will. I'm speaking with Kevin Schess. He's a professor of neurology and neurosurgery at the Yale School of Medicine, and he helped to test and deploy this first portable MRI machine. Dr. Schess, so a, a traditional MRI machine then isn't completely obsolete at this point yet <laughs> um, because it still does a little bit better, but um, the trade-off is worth it in this situation. So you need a portable MRI machine. That's right. Not, not at all is a, is a conventional MRI obsolete. In fact, I would say that they're entirely complementary. You can imagine settings and applications for which a high field magnet or a very high field magnet can do special things that maybe the portable MRI machine will almost never do or certainly can't do today. Those applications are incredibly useful. But there are other applications which the old school MRIs are not going to do. You're never going to ask me if we can take one of those MRIs and put it into the back of an ambulance. Could this portable MRI machine also allow people who normally couldn't or wouldn't uh, get a traditional MRI, uh, would it allow them to be able to, to get an MRI? Oh, I think, I think it could. Absolutely. So um, one of the nice things is, um, first of all, uh, it could do that because maybe the portability uh, helps with accessibility. The second way is that it has a nice open frame design. And that may help with, you know, size limitations or body habitus that might facilitate. Uh, the third uh, way, and this has to do with the setting, is the lower cost. So now it just means that uh, this imaging device can be really democratized and widely available because of those cost, uh, reduced costs and reduced power requirements and reduced technician requirements. So, so that can really help. And then finally, what I might say is that... Um, you know, there are other conditions which largely make it difficult for people to get an MRI. An example is if you have a pacemaker. A pacemaker and certain other devices embedded within the body can sometimes be relative or absolute contraindications. Because uh, the, why you, the magnetics, right? <laughs> that you because keep... mag cause you've got metal in your body. Right. You know? And so you can't, I, 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 I want to emphasize that testing has not been done formally yet with this low field device, but I know that it will. And I would say that I'm optimistic that it's gonna be really uh, helpful to that population, but we need to prove that. What about claustrophobia? Yeah, it's interesting. I think we'll have to learn and see what that's like. But look, if you're in an open uh, frame device, then it's much less of an enclosed device going into this long, shallow, dark tube that you do when you get a, a, a conventional MRI. The second thing is, is that if you get a picture in a room, um, you know, normally in those secure access suites, other people are not allowed to go into the room with you. So here you can literally imagine getting a scan of your MRI at the bedside and having your significant other or your loved one uh, at the foot of your bed actually talking to you while you're getting scanned. That's got to help reassure people. Paint a picture for us. Do you still put your head in the machine or do they do they wheel it over to your head and then they're able to just like lift your head up and stick it in the machine? How, how does that work? That's exactly right. I know it sounds too simple, too crazy. But you would literally, we let's say you're lying on a bed or a massage table or something like that. You would literally wheel the device over to one end of the table. And then literally you would just lift up your head, maybe slide back into the device, you know, just a matter of a foot and that's it. Voila, you're ready for a scan. When will this be available? Oh, well, I, I think certainly you could speak with the company, but it's already on the market. Uh, uh, institutions and systems are, have ordered and are buying these devices and they're being used around the country. We're excited here at Yale because no one has had as much experience as we have. Uh, and you know we've been deploying this now in hundreds of patients. But what's really exciting to see is that many of our colleagues around the country, and in some cases, 
uh, I think soon around the world are actually ordering, buying, and, and most importantly, using this device, uh, you know, in their patient populations. And it's significantly cheaper than a traditional yeah. MRI? Again, I, I can't speak to the exact cost, but I know that the cost of the device itself is on the order of, you know, maybe one-tenth or one-twentieth of what a conventional MRI might be. And, um, you know, for the overall pricing structures, of course, you have to uh, talk to the company, uh, but it, it's, it's really just a fraction of the cost compared to a uh, conventional high-field MRI. Kevin Schess is a professor of neurology and neurosurgery at the Yale School of Medicine, and he helped to develop this first portable MRI machine. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, thanks for being interested. I'm Ciara Hewlett. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. The conversations in today's episode come from the Top of Mind archive. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in today to Top of Mind. People with a severe food allergy to something like peanuts have to be constantly on alert. Even a trace exposure can be life-threatening. The only real treatment for food allergies, aside from just avoiding the thing altogether, is something called desensitization, which works but can be really grueling because it's basically giving someone tiny doses of the thing they're allergic to, so they build up a tolerance over time. Meanwhile, food allergies remain incredibly common among Americans. The Sean Parker Center for Allergy and Asthma Research at Stanford is on the cutting edge of developing better ways to cure food allergies. Andrew Long is a lead investigator on the team, and he joins us now. Dr. Long, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Is somebody born with a food allergy? It's like written into their genes that peanuts will be a problem for them. Uh, there's part that's genetics, um, and that's, you know, been pretty consistent over the ages, um, but recently, you know, in the past few decades, there's been a steady rise in the incidence. And we know it's really not just attributed to genetics, but more so how the environment interacts with our genes. Okay. Um, For what? Like, give mm -hmm. an example. This happens, what, in infancy or, or in utero? Yeah, infancy all the way through adulthood. Um, we've also seen new onset in adulthood. Um, so it's not just limited to infants, but there's certainly risk factors that are more um, prevalent at birth. Um, and there's more room for those to have an impact, such as um, pollutants, you know, what your setting is, rural versus urban environment, um, family members, uh, and living with a pet even has been shown to decrease your incidence of allergy. What's um, the thinking there? The, yeah, a lot of it goes to the microbiome and the bacteria in our gut. Um, and how that diversity plays a role in interacting with our DNA, and how it causes differences in how we express our DNA and modulate the immune system. Can you explain what's actually going on in somebody's body when they are allergic to peanuts and they encounter sure. peanuts? Yeah. So uh, the, the main driver of a food allergy is the production, uh, incorrect production of something called IgE. It's an antibody that recognizes the food as sort of a uh, enemy. And so when we see that, the IgE is binding to it and triggering a whole cascade of the allergic responses and the symptoms that you see, you know, such as swollen airways, itching, hives, vomiting, um, and the like. Um, and so, it, so wait, yeah. is is that a th this IgE protein? It's the person's body that is creating yes. this when it encounters peanuts. In this example, exactly. Um, and but, so during development, you know, the body kind of decides on first exposure. Uh, depending on what your local immune system environment is doing, it decides whether or not it's going to mount that response or not. Wait, sometime, so sometime early in a person's life, mm -hmm. the body has to sort of get get trained up on what what foods are going to be okay and what foods it's going to have a reaction to? Exactly. And And, you know, some of those environmental factors around us predispose us to mounting a response against the food allergen or determining that it's fine. Like what? What what would be an environmental thing that might predispose a, a person's body to consider peanuts to be dangerous? Sure. So one thing that we've we've, you know, have a lot of data on now is an increased risk in, you know, infants with eczema or atopic dermatitis. 
Um, and so it's not really the environment so much, but a, a predisposed condition that is working uh, and is sort of the lead step before developing allergies. And the thought behind that is that the initial exposure isn't really going through the gut pathway that a normal exposure would happen through. Instead, it's kind of getting access through the skin. And when the immune system notices the food allergens going through the skin, it's usually pre, you know, predisposed to thinking of things as bacteria or viruses going through the skin, and it mounts a response that way instead. Oh, okay. So your your immune system can come into contact with something if you eat it or breathe it in, right? Which are going to be different immune cells that will encounter it versus your body's kind of like set up to expect that anything that makes it through the defenses of your skin is potentially a problem because it might be a virus or bacteria. And so it's maybe more reactive, more inclined to, 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 to be defensive. If, if a baby has eczema, which is, you know, a rash that has like cracks in the skin. And so if like peanut butter gets through there when they're a baby, the skin's going to be like, hang on, this is bad news. (laughs) And that, and that turns into this like perpetual, the body just reacts anytime it comes into contact with peanuts, whether you eat them or, exactly. or get it on your skin. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So, so if allergies then are an immune response, an inappropriate immune response to a specific food, um, how does the sensitization or desensitization concept work when treating these kinds of allergies? Sure. So essentially, I mean, like you kind of outlined in the beginning, um, the main foundation of it, and it's been happening for over a century, is exposing the patient to tiny, tiny bits of the allergen and gradually, slowly building up over time. You know, every two weeks, we increase the dose or so. Um, and as, as we do that, you know, there are side effects, but going slow and starting at a low enough dose tends to make those side effects not as prominent. And so it allows the body through routine exposure to retrain itself and be okay with oh. that, that allergen. So over um, time, so over, over time, the body stops creating those IgE proteins when it encounters the allergen, exactly. the, the, the peanuts. There's another piece of the immune system that is the tolerant side that starts seeing it and it overpowers sort of that IgE production and it downregulates it. Um, as you build up on your dose and through a long duration of exposure, huh. routine exposure. It's like uh, exposure therapy for your immune system. Like if <laughs> exactly. you have some sort of, you know, phobia, you'll go to a therapist and they might like make you hold a snake or something <laughs> to kind of exactly. not be so afraid and of it, it and anymore. It's, it's a challenging process, you mm-hmm. know, just like that. It, it really is a challenging process. It, I mean, how do you, so for someone, I mean, because in the most extreme cases, like the reaction can be so severe, somebody could could actually die from just the tiniest exposure to. I keep using peanuts; it's not the only thing, right. but just for <laughs> it is just the, for simplicity. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so how do you even administer that in a way that's safe for somebody that has such a reactionary immune system? Right. So, I mean, safety, you know, is always first and foremost, you know, built into all these protocols, and we've had so much experience over the decades of conducting this, you know, there's all these nuances that go into it and really early recognition of, you know, an allergic response and early treatment. Um, When we start, you know, initial treatment, there's inclusion and exclusion criteria in the protocols. And, you know, what you're talking about where there's a past experience of, you know, needing intubation or something very serious Mm. for even the lowest doses. At this time, they're still excluded from the trials because we don't have enough safety data on it. it's not that many patients, surprisingly, because patients do a good job of, you know, avoiding once they have any type of reaction. Um, once they're in, you know, we're talking about one fiftieth to a hundredth of a peanut starting dose. Um, so it's just it like is, a little, a little teeny crumb. It, that sometimes you put. it's specs that may not even be there. Uh, you know, you sneeze and it blows away, but um, and they we eat start it. Somewhere. You like put it in their mouth, or do you inject it, or just rub they, it on their we skin? We mix it with a, a non-offending vehicle, so you know they use pudding or applesauce, something <laughs> that they're not allergic to. Wow! Um, and then every two weeks, you know, they come in and we do an observed dose in the clinic under the supervision of medical providers that have done this. They know this in and out. 
Um, and we watch them for two hours after they take the dose because that's the typical digestion time. And if a symptom is going to occur and manifest, that's really when it's going to happen. And so we'll always watch them and monitor their vitals for two hours anytime we do any change in their dose. Um, between visits, they'll continue that dose at home. Uh, and basically, we're talking to them daily through a diary where they record symptoms and anything that's going on. And it, but they, they might have symptoms that are uncomfortable or unpleasant hives or something. And, and that's part of why this is not the most enjoyable treatment. But is it right. is for people who can stick with it? How long does it usually take for it to be successful? So trials, it really depends on what your goal is. You know, how high do you want to build up? And for some trials, we build them up to an amount, say, about a peanut's worth that would protect them against accidental exposure. Mm -hmm. Whereas other trials, we try to get multiple servings of tolerance so that they can incorporate it into their diets, you know, as, as you or I would. Wow. Um, you can actually build up somebody to where they had a severe reaction initially, but over time they can just eat peanut butter, a whole peanut butter sandwich. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, um, does it ever make the know, allergy worse for some people? I mean, could the body have very, the opposite reaction? It's very rare that patients can develop, uh, eosinophilic esophagitis and it's a fraction of a percent of patients who do. And in those cases, we follow up with care, um, and refer to an allergist because we're still looking at ways to treat those patients with alternative meds. Okay. Um, yeah, which but I as wanna... you said, you know, when we talk about symptoms, they are generally mild to moderate and, you know, you should expect them. But we've we've noticed through our research that the longer you stay on the dose and the higher you build up, the symptoms kind of fade out as your body takes over. Huh. Yeah, that's really so the body really the immune system really is trainable that week. But it might that way. But it might take six months. Would it take a year? Yeah. Yeah. Anywhere from six months to multiple years. OK. Um, depending on how it's done and what the goals of the research are um, and sort of what endpoint we're looking for. And do you have to like constantly be refreshing that just continually reminding the body, hey, peanuts are cool. Don't worry. Exactly. We've, we've noticed that you really need to take your dose daily. Um, once patients desensitize and, you know, you're tolerating an amount that you can put in your diet, we found through one of our recent studies that if you start avoiding the dose again, you gradually resensitize. So it's not a permanent thing. And, and it's really critical that, you know, there's adherence after the fact, you know, mm -hmm. there's a good transition from, you know, looking at the food as a medicine during therapy to transitioning to looking at it as a food like you or I do and continuing to take it daily. Yeah, the, the, that early learning really is um, persistent yeah. then. It really sticks. Whatever your body first learns to fear is what it's going to continue to want to fear. <laughs> you have to keep reminding Absolutely. it, which is um, which is part of the reason why I guess we there's now this recommendation that you expose kids to some of these things um, early and often uh, when they're when they're babies. Um, and that the idea is just to try to like head off the body misinterpreting something as being dangerous. Yeah. That was some of our colleagues in Europe with the LEAP study that actually showed that in infants with severe eczema, uh, earlier exposure to peanuts and egg is actually significant in reducing the prevalence of peanut allergy um, as opposed to those who avoid peanuts for the first 60 months of, of life. Now, Dr. Long, as a pharmacist, um, some of what you're working on that's especially uh, interesting of late has to do with using medicine, a drug to sort of assist in the desensitization. How does that work? What is the drug you're looking at? Sure. Uh, so right now, you know, as we kind of talked about, there's still symptoms that poke through um, and it takes a long time. And a lot of that is due to the fact that we're kind of limited in how fast we can build up due to those symptoms that are causing things to slow down and be a little more cautious. And so focus has really shifted towards optimizing that safety and convenience. And over the past few years, the big focus is through the addition of antibodies that really inhibit and suppress an extremely specific part of the immune system that's responsible for things like the IgE production um, and other factors that drive the food allergy specifically and don't really overlap, overlap with the rest of your immune system. So you're not really immunocompromised. So you um, give somebody this drug while they're also doing the, the tiny amounts of peanut exposure therapy, but the drug helps to what, like tamp down the, um, the response so that the immune system can just be learning without also kind of wigging out? 
That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, it really just tones everything down and creates that safe window where we can kind of go a lot faster in retraining the body without the worry of so many side effects poking through. And the nice thing is a lot of these drugs and these antibodies are medications that are already FDA approved and routinely used in kids and adults for other diseases that are similar, like uh, allergic asthma or atopic dermatitis. Hmm. But now we're kind of using it in this field. So we have the safety data already. Wow. So you can just like plug it in as an assist and you're able to go faster because you can go from a fraction of a peanut to a whole peanut um, yeah. m- more quickly without yeah, worrying. Essentially, you know, what we found was that a good deal of patients, you know, instead of doing a speck of peanut, we're talking about, you know, one, 1. 1.5 grams on their starting day, which is, you know, a few peanuts. Hmm. Wow. Whole peanut. Yeah. So it's definitely made a huge difference. And I think that's definitely the future direction that we're going in terms of when we eventually want to bring this to practice and expand it for, so that everyone, you know, in the community can benefit. Yeah. I mean, could people just take these drugs instead? Like if you're allergic to peanuts, you just anytime you want to eat a peanut or peanut butter, you, you just take this drug. <laughs> uh, you could theoretically. Uh, but the issue is just the cost. Um, it's all prescription based. The cost of each injection is is pretty limiting and insurance does not cover it for this purpose um and if you just take the antibody without the food exposure you're not really retraining your body and so as soon as you withdraw the the antibody you're back to being allergic again and so there's no real benefit yeah but you're finding that this technique uh works with all food food allergies when you're doing the desensitization yeah and so you know the past protocols that we used to do because of the safety issue and how much volume we need from just one allergen, a lot of our past protocols without the antibodies were just single allergen. And so a lot of patients, you know, 40% of patients with one allergy have multiple. And so these antibodies help us open the door to multi-food allergy treatment all at once due to the volumes that we can give. So instead of having to do a whole six months to a year on the peanut thing, and now you also have to do the egg, and then it could just be like, you spend your entire adolescence going through this. (laughs) And by the time you get to the end, you're resensitized to peanuts. Interesting. Really interesting work. Dr. Long, thanks a lot for your time today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Andrew Long is a pharmacist and lead researcher at Stanford's Center for Allergy and Asthma Research. I'm Julie Rose. Today's episode was a selection of our favorite conversations from the Top of Mind archive. Find more on the free BYU Radio app. We'll talk soon.